Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Easter really kind of preaches itself, amen? So if you'll stand for the benediction, we'll be dismissed. I'm kidding. Knock it off. Do you know that some days, there have been years when I have wanted to come here on Easter morning, no kidding, and simply say to you after we've gathered, why do you look for the living among the dead? For he is not here, he is risen. Just as he said, he has gone ahead of you. Now go, go and find the resurrected one in your lives. That's where the resurrected one always shows up, disguised as your life. And you can find him and you will find him if you search for him with your whole heart. Today, we bring to a kind of apex, a kind of um, conclusion, a series of sermons throughout the season of Lent that have meant something to me and I hope they have to you because we have been leaning into the seven I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John because seven times at least he was given the opportunity to self-declare who he was and what his mission in this world was all about. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. And today we gather for the final I am statement. And this is important because I know that if I were to ask you to finish the sentence about who you am, I know some of you would say I am so tired. I am exhausted, I am lonely. I am ashamed, I am afraid, I am angry. And some of you may have been going through a thing lately that would compel you to have to say, I am dying a little bit on the inside every day. And if you're here today and that is you, man, did you pick the right Easter to come to church. Because today's I am statement is I am the resurrection and the life. And in just a moment, we're going to read this passage of scripture from John chapter 11. But before we do, I want to set up a little bit of context for you. In John chapter 11, you can find your way there. If you don't have a Bible, reach for one in the pew right in front of you. And if you don't own one, I just want you to take it. Take it with you. Let that be your Bible. Because there was a family in the city of, or the town of, uh, of Bethany. And Jesus was very close to this family. Two sisters and a brother, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. And he loved them. 
He loved them deeply, so much so that the gospel writer John makes sure that we understand the level of closeness that he felt with this particular family. He was in Bethany for a little while doing ministry, and he was preaching, and he said some things in his sermons that upset the people greatly. You know, that sometimes happens. I mean, in other churches. It's possible, you know, sometimes that preachers in other places with other congregations say things that upset the people, right? This particular town, the people were so upset that they tried to kill him. So he had to escape. He left. He crossed the Jordan. He goes across the Jordan and word comes back to Jesus that Lazarus has fallen sick, very sick. And he delays going back. He waits a little longer than they had hoped. And finally, word comes to Jesus again that that Lazarus has died. So Jesus turns to his disciples and says, we must go now to Bethany. They said, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? They were just trying to kill you. We must go for Lazarus has died. When they go to Bethany, Martha meets them on the road. We pick up the story In John 11, verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Can we stop right there for just a moment? Because, you know, there was local legend in that region that after a person died, the local superstition, the local legend was that as a spirit would kind of hover around the dead body for three days, So John makes sure that we understand that the day they showed back up, it was day four. In other words, that's code for he was like really dead, like super dead. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know that that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? It's interesting to me that when Jesus finally makes it back to the town or near the town, the very first thing that Martha said to Jesus was, if you had been here. Lord, if you, if you had only, in other words, she goes back in time and she, to the past, see. If, you had only, if we could have turned back time, if, if you could have just been here, you could have prevented Everything that has transpired, if, if you had been here, and sometimes it occurs to me that you and I will miss out on the fullness of resurrection because we get stuck in something we lost in the past. 
We get gripped by a grief that happened either four days ago or four decades ago. And it's a dangerous thing to be gripped by grief that won't let you go. You know, we talk about grief here from time to time and you've heard me talking about this. You've heard me saying that when we lose something, when we lose a loved one and they die or we lose maybe not a person but something significant to us, we lose a job, we lose a relationship, we lose a season in life. It's like a death. It's like a death and we go through these well, these stages of death and predictably we'll go through seasons like shock and numbness, like I can't believe this has happened. I, and then we'll go through a period of denial in which, no, this is, this is not happening. This, I, he is not dead. He is not gone. And we move from a denial to a, a kind of anger. I can't believe this would happen and how he went out and why God would allow this to happen. I can't. And there's this anger that then transforms into a, a bargaining, they call it. If, I, if I'd only, gosh, if I could have, I, I, sh- I should have, and, and I, I would have if, if, and the bargaining then shifts to a deep sadness and depression. That if things are healthy and things continue to move forward, ultimately you begin to accept the reality of the loss of the thing that was so beloved, right? And the trouble with grief, however, is that it doesn't come that clean It's not linear. You can't predictably mark on your calendar, now I will be in shock and now I'll move to anger and now, but it comes messy. And you can no more control the pattern and the the process of grief than you can control the tide of the ocean. It comes when it comes, it ebbs and flows when it ebbs and flows and all you can do is learn to ride the wave But the trouble is all of us find something along the way to grieve, a person, a place, a season, a thing that's over and it fills us with grief, but we grieve differently, you and I. Some people grieve with what's called anticipatory grief. Maybe you have had a loved one who was dying for a long time, maybe many months and many years until ultimately that fateful day came and you make it to the funeral and people say of you, oh, he's doing so well. Or she's not even shed a tear. But they don't realize that you've been grieving for a year and a half. Anticipatory grief means that you begin to grieve before the actual death and then the death comes and you continue to move. But others do the opposite, not anticipatory grief, but delayed grief, which means it may come unexpectedly and this loss, this sudden shock to your system means there's no time to grieve. I've got to make decisions. I've got to pick out a casket and the flowers and where will the reception happen and how many people are in my family. And you're in the go mode until people look up at the funeral and they say to you or to others, wow, she's doing so great. He's not even shed a tear. He's doing really, really well. Then six months later, two years later, the family dog dies. And there is this tsunami of emotion that comes over you and you can't control it. That's delayed grief catching up with you. And others are neither anticipatory or delayed grief. But sometimes as we are grieving, we can unfortunately fall into arrested grief. Do you know what it means to be arrested by grief. It means you get stuck in one of those stations or stages of grief. And I can't seem to get unangry. I can't seem to get unsad about it. I can't stop this numbness 
of the loss, the shock, and I, and I get stuck in this, this pattern of grief. It's hard to experience resurrection if you are arrested by something that you are grieving in the past. You're like, well, so what do I do about it, Sean? You look and fix your eyes on the person who is resurrection, the living Lord. Because here's what happened. Then he's standing there in front of Martha and she's going back to yesterday. She's going back to four days ago if you had only been here. If we can go back to the past and undo the thing that was did, unsay the thing that was said, well, then somehow everything will be just fine. And he says, no, 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 no. Your brother will rise again. And she goes, yeah, I know. I know at the end, theologically speaking, eschatologically speaking, I know he's going to rise at the end when we all rise. She showed her hand theologically in the belief that the righteous will rise at the end of the age, that the kingdom will come one day. And you know what she did? Standing in front of the very resurrection and life himself, she went from the past, zoomed right past the present to the future. Yeah, I'll put all my hope in the one day to come and after the thing happens and after I go through the transition and after I change jobs, after we move to a new house, after I do the thing, then one day resurrection will come and Jesus says, you're not getting what I'm, what I'm telling you. That you keep looking to the past as if I was the resurrection. You keep looking to the future as if I will one day be the resurrection, but I am resurrection, Martha. I am Right here and now, and the problem is you and I, we are Martha. We are Martha because we do the very same thing. Even on an Easter Sunday, we get up in here and we say, hey, 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus was raised from the grave. And that's true. And we celebrate that. And we do the hallelujah bells. And we say, the, he's risen indeed. There we go. Somebody's listening. Right on. Right on. Okay. Well, we say, yeah, resurrection was what happened 2,000 years ago. Or we'll say, you know what? One day when this life is over and we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when I see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Yes, and all that's very true. The problem with that is that resurrection is not about yesterday, 2,000 years ago, nor is it about two millennia to come. It's about right now standing in front of you at any given moment is the person of the resurrected Christ attempting to show you that even in your grief, in the unfinished business of your misery and sorrow and unknown, you can have an inner aliveness that makes you unflappable during the wind and rain. Yeah, yeah, well. So he says to her, resurrection is not some point in history. Resurrection is not some promise of the future. Resurrection is a person. And you can receive that person, even this very moment. So he continues to move toward the town. And we're told that as they get closer to the town, Martha's sister, Mary, runs out to meet Jesus and Martha where they are. But with her comes a whole cadre of people. Many, many people from the town come with her. Friends and family members, neighbors, co-workers, just in-laws, outlaws, the whole gaggle of them. And we know that in the first century, at funerals, you could contract professional mourners. Did you know that? You could pay a group of women who were professionals at weeping and wailing. Yeah. 
And they would, they would weigh, you can see some funerals even today in the Middle East, you'll see sometimes this expression of deep heartache and rending of garments and dust going up in the air and uh, marking their faces with dust as a reminder of our mortality. And, and on another Easter, not today, but if I had time today, you know what we ought to talk about one day is how death averse we are how so afraid of dying we have become that we make all of our funerals so buttoned up. How you doing? Doing great, doing fine. Oh, she's doing so well. Professional mourners of the first century were meant to be triggers that provoked and stoked and evoked the necessary emotion out of those who have lost loved ones to just be human and let it out. And here comes Mary with all these women and these men of the city and these neighbors wailing, weeping. There's a cloud over the whole city and they walk up and they meet Jesus. And Mary says the same thing to Jesus that Martha did, if you had been here. She starts to go down the yesterday road as well. And we pick up in verse 33, these words. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. I find it fascinating that the very first thing Jesus says to Mary when Mary joins the group, and there's this cadre of mourners, grievers, those who have lost and who are lamenting, I find it interesting that the first thing he asks is, where is he? Where have you laid him? Take me to the place where you buried that which you loved. I think sometimes you and I stay at like an arm's distance from true inner aliveness and resurrection because we've never gone to the thing that died and say, yeah, it's buried, it's dead. We tend to live our lives as if all that we have lost is simply asleep. But until you let something die, you can't know the power of resurrection. Take me to where you laid him. Do you know what, it, what it's like to have something that you know was so cherished, so beautiful, so good, ripped from you, lost, and to still hang on as if maybe it's not quite dead? Jesus says, I need to see the stone. I need to see the grave. I need to smell the stench in the air. I need you Show me what you have buried. Somebody has come today on Easter Sunday, and I'm, I don't know, maybe the only thing that you need to hear is this. Until it dies, it won't rise. But that which you bury with Christ doesn't tend to stay dead long. So he takes and goes with her to this place. And what I want you to know is until we embrace the pain of death, we can't know the power of resurrection. So this is also a very familiar passage, isn't it? Because after he says to her, take me where you've laid him. And then she says, well, come and see. And then he cries, he weeps. Now, many of you grew up in the church where you learned that the shortest verse of all scripture, if you're reading from the King James Version, is what? 
Jesus wept. That's right. Although technically the Greek is a little longer. Jesus began weeping or even longer. Jesus began to weep to convey this wasn't a cute cry. This was an ugly cry that he began and it went deep into his own weeping over that which was lost. And some begin to try to explain where this came from. Well, he must have loved Lazarus. That's what the text says eventually. He must have loved him. Look how deeply he loved him. He's so visibly upset. And that's possible. That's possible. Others have said, well, maybe he wept because when she said, come and see, that's like a, a trigger word for him because that phrase was his phrase. When he began to recruit disciples in the beginning of the gospel of John, they would come to him and say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Where are you camped out on the issues? Where are you theologically and politically? If I'm going to get your dust on my robe by following you so closely, I need to know something about your way of life. Where are you headed? And Jesus would say again and again, well, come and see. And I don't know, maybe because he is aware that possibly he used that phrase to recruit Lazarus. And now, almost with a little snark in the air, Mary, where have you laid him? Well, come and see. And maybe that's possible. But I think that he cried for another reason. I think that Jesus wept for another reason because he's standing back and he knows who he is. He knows that in just a few chapters here, he knows that in a short run, he himself will be crucified and raised to bring newness of life to all humankind. He knows that he is the resurrection and the life, and yet he has to endure watching a world that is convinced by the illusion that death has the final word. He sees Mary on her face weeping, the women throwing dust in the air, the men uh, sitting down in resignation and despair like a cloud over this town. And the fact is you and I need to understand when we are weeping over that which we've lost, we do not weep alone because Christ, even the risen one, weeps over us. And why? Because he knows something we tend to forget on a daily basis. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning, and I wish we had some time to mess with the English a little bit here, because yes, weeping endures for a night, and joy, J-O-Y, uh, comes in the morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, but you know, if I weren't writing it down and just talking to you, I'd also say that sometimes joy comes in the morning, because in the midst of mourning, we recognize he's weeping with me, and if he's weeping a little while, and he is the resurrection and the life, but well, then that which I bury with him will one day rise as well. So he goes to the tomb and he gives the command, roll the stone away. And Martha protests. You remember this protest? It's beautiful. She's like, but he's been dead four days, Lord. There, there's a stench. There's a stench to the body. But if you're reading from the King James, you know, it's one of the best places in all of scripture. Martha, roll the stone away. And Martha says, but Lord, he stinketh. Is that not the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? He stinketh. All right. And they rolled the stone back. And this is where we pick up in verse 43. He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, 
his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This may be the most beautiful moment in all of the miraculous in this story. He comes out bound in grave clothes, hand and feet, cloth over his face. He's wearing the rags of death. It's amazing to me that even we who are resurrection people, we who have been made alive in Christ, every morning we will still choose because we're prone to do it. We'll put on the old rags of our former life. All the patterns that remind us what got us in the grave in the first place. All those patterns that are life-taking patterns, sinful patterns. We'll put on every morning the same strips of cloth that put us in the grave in the first place. And Jesus says to them, unbind him and let him go. Take off those, the vestiges of the vestments of death. You don't have to wear them anymore. You can be clothed with Christ, the risen one. And I love, I love what Paul Bird. Is that you, Paul? Somewhere over there? Okay. All right. He, yeah, he's traveling. That's right. Paul Bird, my friend, about a week ago, was talking about this text. He preached a good sermon on it. And, and he said, you know, something I, I noticed and I've never noticed before. It's interesting that Jesus commands the community to unbind him. He doesn't say, come here, let me take these things off of him. Here, come here, let me take the grave clothes off of him so he can be free. He makes the community do it. Why? Because it takes each other to remind one another on a daily basis, you don't have to wear these clothes anymore. You don't have to be bound in the vestiges of the vestments of death anymore. You have been made alive in Christ. This is why it's important to come to church. I mean, like every Sunday, not out of duty or obligation or piety, but because I don't know about you, but I need somebody to look at me and say, why are you putting on those old clothes again? Why are you wearing the vestments of death when you have been clothed with Christ? You don't have to wear them anymore. You are free. Beloved, this whole I am invitation to us is to remember when he says, I am bread, we get to say we are fed. Amen. When he says, I am light, that means we get to say we have sight. When he says, I am the door, that means we have access forevermore. When he says, I am the great shepherd, that means that once we were lost, but now every single one of us is found. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that means you and I know the path into the heart of God. And when he says, I am the true vine, that means no matter what vine we are attached to, we recognize it will all be fruitless unless we are attached to him. And if you're here today and something in you has been dying for a little while, you need to understand that when he says, I am the resurrection, that means you are alive. You have been made to walk in newness of life. You don't need those old clothes anymore. Thanks be to God. Listen, you know, we get a lot on Easter out of the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. In fact, if I were to say it, if I were to say the Lord is risen, you would say. But I've been thinking about that a little bit this week because you know what? We got to play with the English here a little bit too. Because what it means is 
Lord is risen. Yes, he's risen absolutely, indeed, for sure. That is confirmed. But you know how he's risen? He has risen in every deed that looks like him. He has risen in the deeds of compassion and grace and mercy and justice. He has risen indeed. And when we gather for church, the deed is to look at each other and remind each other, we are no longer slaves to the grave. The deed is for us to remind one another that we have made alive in Christ forevermore. The Lord is risen. Then let's do the deeds of resurrection with each other.